Well, life is filled with uh, many memorable and unique events. It's very common for us to remember special occasions and milestones that we have reached or perhaps other people in our families or friends have experienced. Some of these events include special birthdays, anniversaries, maybe it's a class reunion or a family reunion, graduations, job promotions, certainly the celebration of marriage is a milestone, buying your first home or meeting someone well-known or a unique person that the Lord has allowed to have a tremendous spiritual impact in your life is a special time. And then there's visiting those special places that fuel fond memories. You can't forget the first time that you've ever seen the Grand Canyon, Niagara Falls, Yosemite, Alaska, maybe Hawaii, if you've been blessed to take such a trip. Maybe you've been blessed to visit and experience the culture of another country. And you had the opportunity to try new foods and smell new smells and experience new sounds and sights. God blesses us with some amazing experiences, doesn't he? He sure does. Yet there's an experience that I've yet to mention that is so, so memorable. And that is the birth of children. For those in the room who have had the experience of finding out that you are pregnant as a couple and you're going to have a child. It's surreal, isn't it? It's very surreal. And for those in the room who are not married and who have yet to have that experience, I can say this with certainty that when your parents found out that they were pregnant with you, it was surreal for them. The truth is that the stories of our births and entrance into this world exist, whether we happen to know all the details or not. And this is mind-blowing to think about. But ever since the creation of the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, from that point in time, it launched a record of millions upon millions of stories And there are those occasions when people only know some of the story. And there are even instances where people only know part of the story and also, unfortunately, none of the story. Regardless of how much we may or may not know, there is a story. How many pregnancies and births have taken place exactly since Adam and Eve? I don't know, and sadly, Wikipedia or Google didn't make a contribution to a definite answer. Only God knows, and all we can do is speculate and guesstimate. But there is one thing that I do know, that no matter how many births have taken place in the past, no no matter how many births are taking place in our present time, no matter how many births will take place in the future, there is one story of a birth that is distinctly and profoundly unique. It stands alone. 
As believers, we have the joy of celebrating this story often. Yet there is a very intentional focus during this time of year. And the title of today's message is A Birth Like No Other. And before we open our Bibles to Luke chapter 1, which I read at the beginning of the service, I want us to do something. I want us to take just a minute. It's been aptly said that familiarity does breed contempt. And it could be possible that you are someone in this room that has heard this account numerous times before. It's also possible that there could be somebody here in this room today that's hearing the story for the very first time. Regardless of where you're at, I want us to be ready. I mentioned that the story is distinct and that it's profound, but it's so much more than that. It's radiant. It's glorious. It's mind-blowing. It's mind-numbing, really. This story will serve as fuel to the lampstand of our worship this week. Let's ask God to illuminate our understanding. Let's take a moment to cleanse our hearts and cleanse our minds from the distractions of this world and to focus, focus on what he would have for us here today. That we wouldn't be hindered from seeing the splendor and the glorious reality of who he is. Let's just take a minute. Pray to yourself. Silently pray to God by yourself to God, asking him to just bless us with insights in his word. Let's pray. And Heavenly Father, we need you. I need you. Help us to see with clarity. Help us to see with precision. Help our hearts to be engaged with your word. Father, you desire for us to know you. You want us to have a deep and abiding personal relationship with you. And you want us to grow. You did not save us that we would stay the same. You want us to grow. You want us to grow in Christ, in Christ's likeness. We thank you for the one who came to model the perfect life for us, the one who imparted his righteousness to us. And now you desire for us just to learn from that example, to know you, to grow in you. And Father, it's so that we can worship you. You receive it as worship. And so I pray that as we consider your word for the next season of time, that you would allow it to be worshipful, that you would help our minds and our hearts to be focused 
to look to you for help. And we know that you're willing to provide it. And so we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Melissa. Well, for the second consecutive week, we're going to parachute in right into a gospel narrative. And last week, if you recall, we got to parachute right into John chapter 4, and we heard from our instructing Savior as he provided us with some spiritual insights and instructions so that we can be prepared for a Christmas harvest. And there was a focus or an emphasis on how we can be prepared to impact others with the gospel. This week's gospel narrative is different. And there's a different emphasis that comes with it. The focus will be on our personal worship of the Savior. And as your bulletin indicates, we're going to consider three reflections in the Savior's story that will fuel our worship of him. Reflection number one involves the angelic announcement. Reflection number two focuses on the encouraging Elizabeth. And reflection number three, the mesmerized mother. Three reflections in the Savior's story, a birth absolutely like no other that will help us to engage, that will fuel our hearts to worship him. And what do I mean by worship? Well, as I prayed moments ago, God wants us to know him. He wants us to know him personally. And this is John 10, 14 language all the way. Christ says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own. And my own know me. How does this work out practically? Well, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so we know him as we engage the scriptures. We get to know him as we draw close to our Bibles. As we pursue him, it allows us to know him and have a deeper personal relationship with him. We also draw near to Christ by engaging in prayer, by sharing our hearts. He wants us to share our struggles with him. Hebrews 4.15, right? We have a great sympathetic high priest who knows the struggles, who walked this earth, who ordained the struggles that you and I face. He knows the struggles and he wants us, as 1 Peter 5.7 says, to cast all our cares upon him because he cares for us. Well, finally... If we do know him, we are going to grow in him. Our knowledge, it doesn't stop at a knowledge of him. It, 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 it connects with growing in Christ. It's an application of that knowledge that allows us to grow spiritually. And as 2 Peter 3.18 reminds us, actually it commands us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of him. And I'm not sure if anyone has ever shared this with you before. But did you know that every command in the entire New Testament, every command that I'm aware of in the entire New Testament is designed so that we can be conformed to Christ's likeness? 
The commands are designed to help us grow and mature in the image of Christ. And spiritual growth involves the life application of our knowledge. And if we know him personally, if we grow in him spiritually, this will allow us and equip us to worship him wholeheartedly and spiritually. Our knowledge of Christ and our growth in Christ provides fuel for our worship. And as Romans 12:1 shares, we can actually present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice to him. Which is what? What's it go on to say? Which is our spiritual service of worship. And then we're told, and it's described what it looks like. It's good. It's acceptable. It's perfect. I always love seeing people who are wearing Gap shirts because I go up to them and I say, you know, do, do you know that that's God's will for your life? And, they, and, and of course they look at me like I'm totally crazy, right? Like what in the world is he talking about? I said, yeah, it's God's will. Good, acceptable, and perfect. And that, and that, that word perfect, it, it actually means complete. There's a wholeness there. It's, it's mature. That's God's will as we present our bodies as living and holy sacrifice. And when we're spirit-led, it leads to joy and growth that produces worship. And when we're led in the flesh, and it's a have to, not a get to, it's a have to, that leads to drudgery and bondage. And that does not worship God. And this is why the Lord distinctly shared that whoever worships God must worship him in spirit and in truth, right? Spirit-led knowledge. Spirit-led growth leads to spirit-filled and wonderful worship. Well, we want our worship to be biblically defined, and I hope that knowing and growing and worshiping blesses you. And that is a mini-sermon inside our sermon today, but it's important for us to know and understand how our Christian lives worship God and how they function practically. And let's get started with our first reflection. And I'm calling these reflections because we're considering the broad scope of what each of these passages, what each section can offer us to fuel our worship of Christ. A reflection does what? It allows us to see something. And each of these reflections will allow us to see Christ in the story of his birth, a birth like no other in greater detail. Reflection number one, the angelic announcement, starting in Luke 1, verse 26, it says this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Luke chapter 1 introduces us to God's messenger, the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel had already paid a, a visit to Zacharias and Elizabeth earlier in the chapter. And 
some of your translations, the, the, the word uh, translated Zacharias, the name Zacharias can also be translated Zacharias. So depending on which translation you have, you might see it as a different name. And I just thought that would be worth mentioning. But this angel appears to Zacharias, who is married to Elizabeth, the eventual parents of John the Baptist. And as verse 6 and 7 indicate, Zacharias and Elizabeth were God-fearing people who honored the Lord with their lives, but they were incapable of having children. And verse 18 indicates that they were advanced in years. And so when the angel Gabriel showed up to let Zacharias know that Elizabeth was going to have a child and that they were to name him John, Zacharias lacked faith, didn't believe him. It was almost this Sarah-like response. Though it doesn't say that he laughed, he doubted. As a result, he was not permitted to speak until after the birth Now, Gabriel, who we are told arrives to see Mary in verse 26, shares that it was during the sixth month. It wasn't the sixth month of the year. The context indicates it's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Our passage shares that Mary was betrothed to be married to Joseph. And many have understood that a betrothal is very similar to a modern-day engagement, but they're actually quite different. Betrothals often took place um, soon after puberty. So Mary, like other women who were betrothed, probably had just entered into her teens. And betrothals were also legally binding. And although sexual relationships didn't, happen or weren't permitted until marriage, there was a legal aspect. How so? Only a divorce or a death could sever the binding of a betrothal. Even in the case of death of the male, the unmarried woman would still be considered a widow. So as we can see, Modern engagement is not a fair comparison. So let's hear what the angel Gabriel had to say in this angelic announcement. Verse 28 says, And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Gabriel comes to meet Mary. And I don't know what your experience has been like with angels in the past, but I imagine if one did pay you a visit or would pay you a visit that um, it might just instill a little bit of fear in us, right? And probably get our attention. Well, thankfully, Mary is a little bit afraid on her heels, but Gabriel speaks and encourages Mary with a gracious greeting. He says, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And these Greek words can be translated highly favored. Mary is highly favored. 
because she's a recipient of God's grace. A similar combination of these words is found in Ephesians 1.6, where it's translated his glorious grace, which has been freely given to us. And though some suggest that Luke implies that there's a certain grace that took place because of Mary's character, the parallel in Ephesians 1.6, the only other occurrence of these Greek words shows that gra- the grace in view here is that which is given to all believers apart from anything meritorious that they can bring to the table. Mary was a sinner saved by grace, but this also shouldn't inhibit us from recognizing the special favor that God ordained for her in giving her the opportunity to give the birth to, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 30 clearly states that she found favor with God. And so if you were like me and you grew up indoctrinated into the Roman Catholic Church, this passage is what serves as the platform for Mariology. Which sadly and destructively led to the aberrant theology about her. How bad is it? Mary has been elevated to the level of being a co-mediator and co-redemptrix equal with Christ. And so, so sad and so unbiblical. Yet we should praise God that he has allowed us to understand exactly what the Bible is teaching The reason his favor was with Mary was only because she was given a very special assignment. The Lord is with you also recalls the favor the angel of the Lord addressed Gideon to assure him of God's help in the assignment that he was about to receive back in Judges 6.12. And I'm thankful that the Lord's favor was with Mary. But I'm also thankful that the Lord's favor was with Noah and all of his family who because he found favor in God, that's one of the first people I'm going to give a hug in heaven, is Noah, right? He found favor in the sight of God and he, it spared the entire destruction of the human race. But I'm certainly not going to pray to Noah or allow him to rise to the level of Christ. And the reality is that if Mary could come back today, she would rebuke everyone. Be convinced, she would rebuke everyone that would allow her name to be elevated and worshiped, especially to the point that it has come to being equal to Christ. I'm so thankful that God allowed us to see this with clarity in his word. And this is application already, right? This is an opportunity to learn and grow and to come along um, um, Uh, Roman Catholics that especially need the gospel, that need to be um, freed from sacramental captivity and false teaching. Well, our angelic announcement doesn't stop with a gracious greeting to Mary, but in verse 31, Gabriel shares the Savior's name to be with her and that this child is actually going to develop in her womb. And then Gabriel expands in verses 32 and 33, and he says this, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. I love that. 
Another neglected aspect of this passage is the great significance of Joseph's lineage to the kingly line of David. And although Joseph was not going to be Christ's physical earthly father, his adoption of Jesus into his family is actually what gave him a legal connection, a legal heir to the throne, to the Davidic throne. While Joseph provided this, the physical right and descent from David came from Mary, his mother. And as Pastor MacArthur shares, in every legitimate sense, both legally and physically, Jesus Christ was the son of David and born to be Israel's true king. And someone might ask, well, if Joseph and Mary were of a kingly line, if they were truly of the Davidic line, then why were they so poor? That's a good question. But there's an answer. Both Mary and Joseph were descendants of King David, who reigned almost a thousand years earlier, but that the, the royal succession was actually broken when King Herod's usurped the throne, okay? And so we get to blame the Herods, and that is why Mary and Joseph were so poor. But even with the throne usurped, God's ordained plan kept the Lord Jesus Christ's physical and legal lineage intact. And Christ's descent from King David is something that's recognized throughout the New Testament, and we even see glimpses, and he's called son of David. Bartimaeus, the blind man, in Luke 18, he cries out and he says, son of David, have mercy on me. As such, Christ was the lawful heir to the throne of Israel, and this is why scripture declares him as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and as one might imagine, this was overwhelming for Mary to be taking all this in. And her Jewish background may have instructed her a little bit, but how would she give birth as a virgin? And she even asked this question in verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. This is a divine miracle. Of all the New Testament miracles, the virgin birth of Jesus is the most controversial. And at the turn of the century, some scholars even promoted the idea that the word doesn't necessarily have to mean virgin. It can actually just mean a young woman, and they really tried to push that. But its principal meaning, and what God intended, is that it does mean virgin. And even if the word virgin were not found in the text how can we dismiss the conceptual implication that Mary is asking when she finds this out and then says, how can I conceive in my womb when basically she was saying, I haven't been with a man yet. 
And Gabriel understood what Mary was asking. And he answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. The angel Gabriel was trying to help Mary understand that this was not going to be a normal conception through a normal biological process. Yes, Christ would go through the process of birth, and yes, he would be carried to a full-term pregnancy, but he was to differ from all humanity in that he would not have a human father. His conception occurred by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this was a miracle in the strictest sense. It was an act that only God could bring to pass. Only God alone could bring something out of nothing, right? We just go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Ex nihilo. Only God alone can bring life out of death. Only God alone can bring fertility to a barren woman. And yes, God can also send his son into this world through a virgin birth. And how does Mary respond? There's no argument or refusal. She didn't express worry about what others might think, which you think she would be inclined to do. She didn't express doubt and need to be rebuked with an angelic gag order like Zacharias did earlier in the chapter. Mary responds in words of submission. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. What fuel this provides for our worship. Knowing God leads to growing in God. And he constantly is growing us forward. And this is true of believers in the Old Testament. And it's true of believers in the New Testament. And we see examples of this throughout the Bible. God calls Abraham. He goes. God calls Isaiah. Isaiah, here I am, Lord. God calls Daniel. God calls Mary. God calls the apostles. And they respond in faithfulness. They unispeak and all basically say the same thing. Here we are, Lord. Send us. And we also have some examples of disobedience, right? Everyone's aware of the prophet Jonah who God called to go to the Ninevites. And, and, and he turned and he went the opposite direction. And God in the greatest form of chastisement, redirected his steps by having him swallow and, and think about it three, three days in the belly of a fish. that get your attention. And, and Jonah was saying what? I know what you're going to do, right? I know what you're going to do, but he, he truly didn't, he didn't understand God. He didn't know God. Now, to Jonah's defense, he didn't have access to the scriptures, all of the scriptures like we do today. He didn't know God's heart and his compassion that he had for the Gentiles too. And I'm so encouraged. I'm so encouraged by those who have responded in faithfulness at Cornerstone. We think about uh, the Denny's in uh, Czech Republic, and even the recent departure of, of Zach Riggs, right, up in Alaska, serving Samaritan's Purse, flying out to the bush, delivering 
supplies. I'm thankful and for the many others in our church, some who are considering how God might send them out and where he might take them as well. And I'm thankful for all of those who are seeking to serve him right here in our very ripe gospel fields of Orange County. Well, we're studying three reflections in the Savior's story that will fuel our worship of him. Reflection number one, focused on the angelic announcement. Reflection number two, focuses on the encouraging Elizabeth. Verse 39, it says this, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah, or Zacharias, depending on your translation, And greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Well, moms in the room that have had the joy of becoming pregnant and finding out the news that you were going to have a child, and we mentioned before that it is a surreal experience, and typically there's such an excitement, especially if there's been a long desire or maybe you've even faced some challenges in getting pregnant and then you find out that you are pregnant. There's some excitement there that usually has you tell somebody, right? You want to let somebody know. Mary just found out from the angel Gabriel that her relative Elizabeth, who everyone thought was barren, is six months pregnant. So Mary arose to go see her. And the verse starts out by saying, in those days. And it seems kind of odd. It was like, she was so excited, why didn't she get up the next day? She did. I'll help you understand this. There's a great distance between between, uh, Nazareth, where Mary was, and it's about 70 or estimated 70 to 80 miles to the land of Judah where Elizabeth was. And so it says in those days, she couldn't get there in one day. It was going to take her a few days to get there. In those days of travel is how it can be understood. And verse 39 adds that she made haste. There were no cell phones for Mary to call or to text Elizabeth. There was no Facebook for her just to send a quick message to congratulate her on her pregnancy. There was no Google Plus or Skype. She didn't have a chance to tweet a twit or twit a tweet. And there's no convenient Snapchat. There was nothing available. If she wanted to tell her, she was going to have to go in person and share this news with her. And she couldn't wait to get there. And oh, what did Mary just found out? (laughs) She found out that she's going to give birth. She's going to give birth to the Son of God and that she is going to become pregnant and conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. There was some excitement to get there. 
She probably set the land speed record for a Jewish woman. If you think about it, she probably just, it was a blazing trail. She couldn't get there fast enough. And as Mary finally arrives and enters the house, something divinely inspired happens. Elizabeth heard her greeting and was filled with the Spirit, and it was revealed by the Lord why Mary was there. In verse 32, or excuse me, 42, says, And she, Elizabeth, exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? How cool is this? Praise God. As one commentator shared, the one word that filled Elizabeth's lips was blessed. Note that she did not say that Mary was blessed above women, but she was blessed among women. And certainly this is true. And this same commentator also goes on to give us another important reminder that we've heard before. While we don't want to ascribe to Mary that which only belongs to God, neither do we want to minimize her place in the plan of God and the favor that the Lord extended to her. Mary was granted favor. Yet we can also see that Joseph received favor too. But it doesn't come in this account. It comes in Matthew's account. In Matthew 1, 18, verse, through verses 25, it helps us see this. And starting in verse 18, and I'll read this quickly. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together in marriage. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit and her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her out in shame resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived is from, is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from his sins. And all this took place to fulfill the prophecy that the Lord had spoken. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not. No intimacy until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Like Mary, Joseph received favor from the Lord when he became the adoptive father of the Son of God. Like Mary, he also received an angelic messenger to deliver the news. Like Mary, Joseph also received grace from the Lord to respond in faith to the special assignment that the Lord had given him. And it's so unique, and he immediately embraces the role and has a heart and a desire. His love for Mary was real. And he engages his role as her protector. And both Mary and Joseph serve as examples to all believers of faith, humility, and submission to the will of God. Mary and Joseph did go on to have other children, and if you think about it, to some degree, the entire family received favor. I mean, it was already wonderful for Mary and Joseph, right? But can you imagine raising the sinless child in your home? 
All right? Can, and all the parents are in the room are saying, sign us up for that program, right? Uh, no, no sinful children, right? And Jesus was the, the perfect son. And Jesus was the perfect sibling. And as amazing as that would be, it's also fitting for us to remember that the reality is that 33 years later, this same family would have to endure watching their son and brother, really only a half-brother, but I'm sure um, a real brother, a full brother in, in a family sense, get unjustly punched and kicked and spat on and tortured and ridiculed before being flogged and then crucified. And that adds a very sobering aspect for us. How could any family endure this except through the faith that only God can grant? And faith is the focus of reflection number two, the encouraging Elizabeth. Through faith, God gave her spiritual eyes to see. Through faith, he gives us spiritual eyes to see. And he revealed something only he could reveal. Verse 43, Elizabeth reveals that her Lord is inside Mary's womb. And Pastor MacArthur shares, it was a profound expression of Elizabeth's confidence that Mary's child would be the long-hoped-for Messiah, the one whom David called Lord. Elizabeth's grasp of the situation was extraordinary considering the aura of mystery that overshadowed all these events. She greeted Mary not with skepticism, but with joy. She understood the response of the child in her womb, and she seemed to comprehend the immense importance of the child who Mary was carrying. All of this must be attributed to the illuminating work of the Spirit. And let's just ponder that for a moment. Mary comes in through the door, okay, and the baby in Elizabeth's belly, this six-month-old still developing John the Baptist, leaps, leaps in her womb. This is just awesome. And though we can't fully comprehend it, we can't fully appreciate it. It is so, so precious. What fuel for our worship as we consider these special details of our Savior's story. If John the Baptist leaped when he was only six months more, how much more for those of us who have recognized him as Savior, who aren't limited to the confines of the womb, how much more can we leap? How much more can we leap for joy and celebrate for joy? He is our Savior. We do celebrate him. We praise God for him. Our hearts resonate and should resonate with this passage. It's fuel for us. Application, go home and jump for joy. Or if you want to jump right here, you can. We, got, we, we can even help. We can get you up higher than you ever thought you could go. No, we, the, the, it, it, spiritually speaking, our hearts leap. They celebrate. And joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Christ 
was John the Baptist's savior, and it made him leap. Christ was Elizabeth's savior, and it made her leap with joy when Mary came through the door. Christ was Mary's savior. And not only did she leap to her feet, and then she did a 70, 80 mile sprint to go share this news and this excitement. He is our savior. And let's leap for joy as we celebrate the reality. And I would just say this, that if in some way, if your heart doesn't leap for joy, if it doesn't leap, and there's no desire from within to, to celebrate the joy that comes during this season. It's worth a heart check. It's, it's worth asking the question, has my heart been changed? If you lack joy in your life and there's no evidence or manifestation of joy in your life, that demands circumspection. That demands a look in. And I'm reminded of that. And I praise God when I'm filled with joy. And am I always filled with joy? No, I'm not. But there, there should be, there are other fruits of the Spirit. Peace, love, joy, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, right? It's just, it's just one of them. But this, it reminds us that we, we need the Savior. And, and it, it, we need to understand and, and, and see that we're, we're desperate without him. And that if there isn't joy within us, that that could mean that our heart is not born again, that we don't know him, that we haven't seen our need for him, that we haven't trusted in him completely. But it's Christ plus something. And you've heard this before. Christ plus something equals nothing. And Christ plus nothing equals everything. It's everything. He's our all in all. He's our strength. And we must come to the place where we come to the, the end of religion or religiosity. And we must come to the place where we make sure that when it comes to our justification, when it comes to the righteousness that we got to have to stand before a holy God when we die, that it is based solely and completely on the work and the righteousness that has been done on our behalf through Christ. Amen? Amen. And we celebrate that. And we have a rich fellowship in that. It is sweetness to our ears. Well, we're looking at three reflections in the Savior's story that will fuel our worship of him. Reflections that will help us know him. Reflections that will help us grow in him. And will eventually and should help us to worship him. We've reflected on the angelic announcement the encouraging Elizabeth, and let's finish our time with our reflection on the mesmerized mother. Mary, as we have already seen, is a woman of great faith. And this is the very thing that when Elizabeth uh, responds to her, and she's led by the Spirit to even say this, she talks about Mary's faith. Blessed is she that believed, in verse 45. And because Mary believed the word of God, she got to experience the power of God. Unlike Zacharias earlier in the chapter who initially lacked faith, Mary's faith was filled with no doubt. 
she trusted. And Zacharias redeems himself a little bit later on um, in, 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 in the chapter where God leads him to redeem himself. He, he, he recognizes and um, there's an overflow that eventually would come out of his heart too that led him to worship. But Mary's isn't impeded at all. There is, there, there is no impeding of, of, of her celebration that's going on in her heart. And this teenage girl who, like everyone else, lacked a copy of the scriptures and usually only heard it read at the synagogue demonstrates a mind that was filled with scriptural understanding. And here is what she had to say. Verse 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me and his holy name. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And as I'm reading this, you can think about the, her mindset on Israel and all that God has done. And all these things are reflecting God's faithfulness so much so that even when we get after verse uh, 53, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped in his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Her, her mind is captivated by the covenant promises that God has made. And here Mary worships God for all that he's doing for his people and all that he's done for his people, which we might include, um, it adds her. And she's mesmerized. And we might think that her mesmeration is due to the fact that she's giving birth to the promised one, but there's a spiritual backdrop that we all need to see. All of this is transpiring during one of the bleakest and most spiritually dark times that the nation of Israel has ever experienced. The Jewish people had sunken deeper and deeper into apostasy and the nation had abandoned the Old Testament truth that salvation is by faith alone in favor of salvation by legalism and self-righteousness and meritorious works. It was self-serving and it was filled with ritualistic worship. And it was not true worship as the Lord had prescribed. And Paul in Romans 10 even helps us know and understand he describes some of these unbelieving Jews and what they were like. They had a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness, they sought to establish their own. And they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. This deafening and spiritual darkness didn't last for a decade. And it wasn't for 40 years like a hard-hearted generation with Moses this lasted for four centuries. And this period, often referred to as the intertestamental period, was bleak and it was dark. And for 400 years, God's people received no word of revelation 
no prophet, no miracles. And the only possible sound that Israel might hear was the ever-fading voice of the last Old Testament prophet, Malachi, that was sent to speak. And perhaps some of you have had this experience. You've been in a mountain range and you've got to hear a good echo. Or maybe you've been near a deep ravine or you've walked around a deeply dug well in the ground and you've had a chance to drop something down into it or to shout down into it. And an echo is defined as a sound that is a copy of another sound and that is produced when sound waves bounce off a surface. And it sounds something like this. Hello, hello, hello. Can anyone, anyone, anyone hear me, hear me, hear me? The sound of Malachi's voice bounced off the hard-heartedness of the Israelite people. In this short Old Testament book, with only four chapters, it starts out with God affirming his love for his people at the beginning of chapter one. But then it goes on and he talks about the, the sins of the Israelite priests before moving into chapter two. And it talks about the sins of the Israelite families. Then chapter three, one says this. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And this is speaking of who? John the Baptist, right? And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, is going to show up in whose temple? His temple. He's going to show up. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And this is the spiritual backdrop of the births that are taking place in Luke chapter 1. This is the spiritual backdrop as Zacharias and Elizabeth receive um, this announcement because it's been silent and there's an angel of God, a messenger from God that showed up and there's been this drought, this, this, this 400 years of silence. And I understood, I can understand things from Zacharias' perspective. I don't know what my heart would have been like. I don't know how inclined I would have been to be able to receive that message. And it's also the backdrop for Mary and Joseph. And so it's no wonder that Mary is mesmerized. And Luke, the physician who is known and has a reputation for taking such um, good details of his account in his gospel and, and in Acts. He was a physician, and we have those who uh, are in our congregation who serve in the medical profession. And I, I can tell you this, I, I've never watched them work, but I, I know this about them, that they take copious notes and they keep medical records. Why? Because it's of great significance and medical records must be accurate when someone's life is on the line. How much more do you think Luke was striving, striving when handling the birth announcement for the Son of God to write it down and get it right? Okay? 
No doubt he went straight to Mary and he had conversations with Mary and it was spirit-led as he recorded this. And what Mary said is often referred to by theologians as a hymn, as a hymn because it's so worshipful. She says, my soul exalts you, which reflects exaltations of God throughout the Psalms. She says, for God has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave, which reflects Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 11, 1, excuse me, 11. She says, for behold, from this time, all generations will count me blessed, reflecting Leah's words in Genesis 30, 13. And there was nothing about her experience that would ever have her point the finger to herself. It was God who had shown her favor. It was God performing the miracles. It was God fulfilling the prophecy. It was God demonstrating his faithfulness to Israel. And she knew this. She knew this because she knew God. And what an example, not just to young ladies, but to all of us. I haven't shared this with Victoria yet, but I'm contemplating changing our daughter's names, Lydia and Sophia, both to Mary. Okay, so I don't know how she's going to receive it. And I had a conversation with Marcus Denny earlier this week, and we've been following, you know, the Lydia, Sophia, Chloe, where we're having a son, but, but he's going to name his girls Mary too. And we feel bad for y'all because you're going to have to figure out which Mary we're talking about. No. Just kidding. Just kidding. That's... In all seriousness, it's not about the name. It's not about the name. It's about the example. And we can learn and be encouraged by her example as she finishes this hymn by speaking of all the things that God has done. Verse 51, God has done mighty deeds with his arm, scattering those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. We see this with Exodus. We we see this with Pharaoh. There's just countless examples in the Old Testament. Verse 52, he brings down rulers from the thrones while exalting those who were humble. Verse 53, he fills the hungry with good things and sends away the rich empty-handed certainly makes us think of Egypt. Concluding with verses 54 and 55, reminding Israel of God's help in remembrance of his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever. The mesmerized mother whom God selected to give birth to the Savior did indeed know God. But there's something else that should encourage us. She knew this too. She knew that God knew her. God knew her. He noticed her. And as a peasant of Nazareth, she was not considered to be very important. And as you'll recall from last week's sermon, when we even talked about the Jewish culture and the the suppression of women in that culture, which was very real, she faced challenges like all the women did. Yet God selected Mary to be the mother of Christ. God allowed her to see that his life in her and through her, if she would trust him, would open up doors for her to magnify and exalt him beyond all her expectations. And so as I was trying to think of applying this, 
um, to our lives, the, the, the takeaways, you know, um, here was this woman, this, this woman who, who thought of herself as being insignificant, and not all of us will have the privilege of being the parents, right? We don't have the privilege of being the Lord Jesus Christ's parents, but we do have the privilege of being in Christ. That's each of us. How does God want your life to exalt him? He wants us to know him. He wants us to grow in him. And he wants us to worship him. I trust that these three reflections on the Savior's story, a birth like no other, will be fuel for our worship of him this week. Now before I close in prayer, I did want to share that there is actually a fourth point to the message. Everybody said, what? There's a fourth point to the message, but it's actually going to take place on Tuesday evening. It's the nearing nativity, and we are going to have a sweet time as we gather together and have the potluck, and I pray that the Lord opens up the opportunity for us all to come out, and if you have family plans, we certainly understand, but we are going to have some fellowship. We're going to be blessed with the children's ministries program, and it is going to be sweet. Hope you can make it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this opportunity again to have our hearts encouraged. And Lord, I don't know the degree to which the minds of everyone in this room were freed from distraction, but I thank you for answering my prayer, allowing me to see with clarity, allowing me to be blessed and encouraged, and I know that many, if not all, in this room were. And I pray, Lord, that we would just acknowledge that there are so many things that deter our focus from you, and that we need your help. We desperately need your help. So we ask for it. We ask for it in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we look forward to this sweet season of celebration as we can consider the reflections of all, all that you have done to allow him to come to this earth, to live the perfect life, and then die the perfect death and to rise in perfect victory so that we could have that perfect righteousness. We give you praise. We give you all the glory. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.